0: I'd like it if we could just bow our heads in prayer and we'll just ask the Lord to be with us this afternoon. Gracious and eternal Father, we thank You for Your love and for the wonderful plan of salvation and the part You have given each one of us to play as being a tiny reflection of Your love and Your grace. And so, Father, I pray that as we learn the lessons that are very diverse in this class that we will find in our ministry somewhere, someplace, there will come a blessing to somebody because we've been here. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We talk about AIDS. I think that the most important thing for us to realize is that relatively speaking, this is a new disease. Now, now, it's possible that there are new diseases that uh, come fairly frequently. For instance, SARS, which was Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, that was a virus that was uh, found to, to be proliferating in humans for the first time just a few years ago. That was a new disease. Whenever a new disease comes along, there is no memory in the genetic bank of those lymphocytes. And so the lymphocytes are going to have to create something entirely brand new. And um, sometimes it's overwhelming. There's always a percentage of the population that manages to make uh, antibodies and fight the immunity fast enough that they they survive. And so that's how the, the human race has survived. Human immunodeficiency virus, though, first became apparent uh, in 1981. So it is relatively a new disease. Today, I have a few objectives in mind when I approach this topic. First of all, I want you to know that there are the two viruses in the HIV family. I want you to know about the two two of them. I I would would like you to, to understand the course of an infection with HIV, because we don't always understand that. I want you to identify the social and the economic impact on HIV on a family, and I want to motivate you to involve yourselves in reducing the stigma attached to this disease. I do this because I believe that HIV and AIDS represents the leprosy of Jesus' time. Now, it may be that there are certain human behaviors that predispose towards HIV infection, and those behaviors may not be the most appropriate, and we may be critical of the behaviors that give rise to HIV in some situations. I want to take a little bit of the time to show you the history. I want to just go through uh, how, how we know about it. And in that way, perhaps familiarize yourself uh, to the situation. Sometime, somewhere in Africa, it is believed that a simian virus, now when I say simian, do you all know what that means? Simian means related to monkeys. So a monkey virus, probably a virus of the great apes, underwent a small mutation that permitted it to infect human beings. Now when we say that, you say, well, isn't that evolution? No, it's not evolution. That is a change in something that's already there. A, a, an error, if you like, a a brokenness, a, a, re, a fresh brokenness in what was occurring at the time. HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, human immunodeficiency virus, has its counterparts in the animal kingdom in things such as FIV, which is feline immunodeficiency virus, which cats may have. And it's felt that this one, the human immunodeficiency virus, was probably uh, something in either chimpanzees or possibly even gorillas, but it's felt that it's more likely the chimpanzee. Part of the problem might have been that in Africa, with food supplies being short as they are, sometimes they use and eat what's called bush meat. Bush meat is anything that they can, they can get. And of course, if they were killing and eating the chimpanzees, as they still do in many parts of Africa where food is scarce, then it would be possible for them to become infected with a virus that was infecting the chimpanzees. And just as we see the concern with bird flu today, avian flu, and we're worried that there could come a mutation in avian flu, it's felt that that's what happened with a mutation in this virus. From calculations of the epidemiological growth of the disorder, it's felt that it probably was sometime in the 1950s that this mutation probably took place. But in 1981, I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was in June of 81, there came a report in the uh, MMR weekly print, which comes out of the uh, Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. There came a report of five young men with an acquired deficiency virus infection. And they reported this, and that was very interesting because here was the new syndrome, or infect it was called syndrome, acute immunodeficiency syndrome, AIDS, it was reported. The interesting factor was that it was in five homosexual young men that it was reported. Of course, this led to a flurry of excitement in the medical medical community not because they were really too worried about it but because it was an acquired condition and it was a new disorder. So here was a new disease hitherto for undescribed in the medical literature. Of course it became apparent thereafter that there were more of these cases because once somebody says, this is, a, this is a syndrome, people start to recognize it. The eye sees what it knows. And so it was very rapid that people were able to say, oh, this is a case, and there's a case, and I have this. In 1981, I was in Lesotho. I did not know, and had, I'd been there for a couple of years, I did not know about this disease. But every now and again, we would have a person with tuberculosis who though we gave them all kinds of treatment for tuberculosis, they just did not get better. And then we would see people who ran fevers for illnesses that we couldn't identify. They had meningitis that we could not treat. And so we knew that there was something strange, but we put it down to our lack of education in in African diseases. So we didn't think that it was a new disease. We just thought we were too ignorant and didn't understand what the disease was. But when they said in 1981, it's HIV, this is a... Well, it didn't say HIV. When they said this is AIDS, we said probably this is what our patients are suffering from. I remember very well in 1986 when Dr. Gilbert Burnham phoned me. In 1984, he phoned me and he said... Alan, I have just done a gastroscopy on a male and I have found a yeast infection, monoliasis or thrush, throughout his esophagus and even in his stomach. I've never seen a yeast infection in a person's stomach. And I said, that is most strange. It must be the new disease that they're describing in the literature. At first, they didn't know it was due to a virus. It took about three years, and it was very confusing in the literature as people wrote about what it was. They were studying whether it was this kind of virus or that kind of virus. went back and forward for quite a while. Church folk, though, church folk had no doubt about what the cause was. Not all church folk, but some church folk said this is a visitation of God upon the homosexual community, giving them what they deserve. You may have been alive at that time. You may have even thought like that at that time. I know that that sort of thinking has never really fascinated me. It's always made me feel bad when we blame God for being the cause of disorder and disease because I don't believe he does that. But it was very strange to me to see this creep into the Adventist community. Perhaps even more sad has been the fact that one of the people that I know very well who had that kind of judgmental attitude actually came down with and died from HIV infection. I remember sitting one day or visiting a place where there were about 60 men sitting in a town called Maputswe. Dr. Landless was working just across the South African border in a town called Fixburg. We had a clinic in Maputswe, a dirty, a dirty, trashy type of town on the border. But there in a sort of warehouse building were set up a lot of lazy boy chairs, you know, those recliner chairs. And there was a gentleman who had set up a business there, he would give a steak dinner to anybody who would give him a couple of units of blood. He would spin the blood down and give them back their own red cells. So they didn't feel, they didn't feel uh, weakened or losing energy. They got their red blood cells back. All he took was the plasma that I told you about this morning, the 50% It was on the top. And, of course, if they drank a lot of water. And uh, he gave them a steak dinner which had far more protein than he ever took out of them in the blood. But he was then taking that plasma and pooling it, putting it together. So the pool of blood from many, many people was put together into one uh, unit. And it was frozen and sent fresh frozen plasma sent to Germany where a major company separated out the fractions from the blood of things like factor VIII for hemophilia, separated out fibrinogen for people who were deficient in maybe required fibrinogen, and the fresh frozen plasma itself was being used. But it was pooled blood plasma. In other words, it was not long before every patient who had Haemophilia was also infected with HIV and AIDS. In fact, when the, when the Red Cross in Canada started to processing the, food, the, the blood, they knew that of this possibility for about five or six months before they moved decisively on screening the blood for HIV and making definitive changes. It resulted in a huge uproar And the Red Cross in Canada was actually banned from handling the blood supplies because of their mismanagement of this this condition. So here we have a virus. What is this virus doing? The virus is attacking lymphocytes. You remember those lymphocytes that we talked about that are producing the antibodies? it is attacking specifically those, those lymphocytes. Now, there are two viruses. There's HIV virus 1, which is more virulent. That means it's more aggressive. And there's HIV 2, which is less virulent and occurs more in West Africa. I don't know whether it's the virulence of the prevalent strain that makes it, even to this day, that there is less viral infection, less HIV uh, and AIDS in West Africa than there is in South Africa, or whether it's a fact uh, due to other particular uh, 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 characteristics of the demographics of the people. Now, the cells that are affected, the lymphocytes that are affected, carry a marker in their cell wall. Now, remember, I've shown you a picture of the cell wall yesterday. The CD4 cell is a cell that carries a particular marker in that lymphocyte envelope, that cell envelope. And that particular protein marker seems to function as a gateway for the virus to get inside the lymphocyte. So this particular virus doesn't cause you to have a runny nose. It doesn't attack your your brain cells or your heart cells although there are effects that can come with infection, it affects primarily these lymphocytes with the CD4 protein marker on their surface. Once they knew that, it was possible to monitor the progress of the disease by monitoring the numbers of lymphocytes, CD4 lymphocytes. And when the count was found to drop below 200, then they started to notice that the syndrome of AIDS actually manifest itself. In other words, the competency of the lymphocyte team, all of them, once it dropped below 200 of them per cubic uh, millimeter of blood, then, then there was this incompetency of the immune system. Now, what happens is that the lymphocyte is attacked by this virus, which gets into it and then causes that lymphocyte to die. But it causes it to die after it has commandeered the nucleus to do certain things. It has commandeered the nucleus to make more virus particles, and I'm going to tell you about this. Now, AIDS, just to get a little bit of picture, these are older statistics because I I didn't go back and redo them. But by 2005, there were more than 43 million people worldwide who were infected. This has plateaued a little bit. Now, some people will say, ah, we are now seeing that it's in recession. It's hardly in recession. It just has reached a plateau that the number of deaths and the number of new cases seem to be in balance and there are still about 43 million people living with an HIV infection. There are over 26 million of these people, or there were over 26 million of these people, living in Africa as of 2005. There were 13 million children left without parents there were 40 million people who had died of HIV. As I drove to the old Mission Hospital Maluti a couple of years ago, the most thriving enterprise that I saw was the manufacture of coffins. And the parlor, the funeral parlor, was doing a thriving business. And although the birth rate is at about 6% in many parts of Africa, the population has ceased to expand. Now, a birth rate of 16% should lead to a doubling of the population about every 10 years. But with HIV and AIDS, that birth rate is now only maintaining a static population. The first thing I want you to tell you about the virus is that it is a fragile virus. You know... Sexually transmitted diseases are transmitted by organisms that are fragile. You know, people say, well, can you catch it from the toilet seat? Well, it's very difficult to have sex on a toilet seat. That's what we always say to people who ask that question. Because this virus, if it dries out, it dies. Unlike hepatitis B, which can survive for a couple of days in a dried form, the virus, the HIV virus, is dead. It requires moisture, warmth, and the nutrients of human tissue, or human blood, uh, or tissues, or human fluids, to keep it alive. That's why it is transmitted in human tissue fluids. So it's transmitted in blood, it's transmitted in plasma, it's transmitted in extracts of blood that are liquid, and its extract. It's transmitted in the ejaculatory fluids and sexual fluids that are you, uh, uh, prevalent in intercourse and sexual intercourse. The virus is what we call an RNA virus. Now. The nucleus, our nucleus is 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 made of deoxyribonucleic acids. Those are the helical structures and those four um, uh, chains, those four four, uh, purine and pyrimidine uh, 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 bases with the sugar. The, The deoxyribose is attached to those. So the deoxyribose chain, in an RNA virus, the sugar is not deoxyribose but is itself ribose. This virus has as its core, has as its core here in its DNA here, uh, in its RNA here, not deoxyribose but ribose. This means that if it is going to be able to use the human lymphocyte cell to make more viruses, it has to somehow be written back into the nucleus, the human nucleus of the lymphocyte, as deoxyribonucleic acid. That's why we call it a retrovirus. It has to be written back. But it comes carrying in its back pocket a special tool. The special tool that it carries in its back pocket is an enzyme called reverse transcriptase. So what it can do, it gets into the cell through the CD4 receptor, and it carries its package of reverse transcriptase with it, and this enzyme writes the mirror image of ribonucleic acid back into the DNA, into the nucleic acid, and creates in the nucleus a new gene. So the gene has now been written into the nucleus. And then that gene becomes operant and it sends messages through transfer RNA to those little ribosomes that are you saw in the cells. And the ribosomes begin to assemble the structure of new virus particles. As the the little wheels, if you want to think of them, of the ribosome, turn out the new virus particles, it turns it out, and I always illustrate this by saying, like a roll of toilet paper. It turns them out, each virus particle representing one sheet of the toilet paper. So it's putting out a ribbon of viruses. And if there was not another enzyme that would be a harmless state because a ribbon of viruses can't get out of the cell, can't get into other CD4 cells. But an enzyme called protease is rather like a cutting device and just as there are perforations between these virus particles as they are in this stream, the protease cuts the perforation, and each particle is then freed into the system. You might say, you're making an awful lot of this and telling us an awful lot ab- about the virus. Uh, you will understand why in a, a, in, in a little bit. Because it's fragile, it requires blood, semen, vaginal secretions, breast milk to transmit it. It can be transmitted by sexual contact, mother to the infant, transfer by blood transfusion, or injection of contaminated material, such as when you use a hypodermic needle. Any port will do. It will get in through the skin. It will get in in the blood. It gets in through a break in the genital mucosa. Any break in the integrity of the skin opens it up so that the sexually transmitted disease can be transmitted. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about some of the sociological factors that could lead to this situation. I believe the earlier, the earlier uh, geography of HIV infection showed that it was being present in Uganda along the truckers' routes. Now, those of you who have worked in Africa know that the truckers drive these trucks throughout Africa. And as they go along, they will drive maybe for 10, 12 hours, and they come to certain depots. These are usually places where they can refuel and get diesel. Maybe there are little places where they can rest and they can have a cheap accommodation. And they may sleep there for uh, eight hours and then carry on with their truck, maybe traveling vast distances across Africa. To understand the size of Africa, you have to understand that the continental United States of America would fit three times into the continent of Africa. So it is a huge continent. And these drivers are driving these trucks. And in Uganda, the country of Uganda, by plotting the uh, prevalence of HIV and AIDS, they were able to show that at these halfway houses, these breaking places, were where the prostitutes were gathering to service the sexual uh, requirements of the truckers. And so all along the routes, every place they stopped, you had a place where there was a nidus of infection. It's from those centers that, that this spread. In South Africa, we sometimes wonder why Southern Africa got hit so hard. In South Africa, the mining industry of South Africa was a major, major industry for the whole region. So, f- so men would come from Malawi, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Botswana. They would come to the gold mines, to the coal mines. And when they came there, they would be separated from their family for six months or a year at a time. The, the mining companies built hostels for them. So a hostel would put that may have 3,000 men or 6,000 men staying in a hostel. For entertainment, they created beer gardens where they could come and drink native beers, traditional beers. These were thick beers with uh, lots of grain in them. They were fairly nutritious, but they had alcohol. And the alcohol would make them feel merry. The young women who often did not have much education or training, they would come to these beer gardens and they would ply their services as sex workers. They would perhaps come to the big city, spend three or four months there, make some money go back to their villages, and then they would have a boyfriend or something back in the village. And so it is that the spread of this disease was greatly contributed to, not just by homosexual transmission, but heterosexual transmission in a socioeconomic climate that fostered the separation and breakup of the homes. It fostered sexual activity and promiscuity among the people and so we found that this became a major problem HIV and AIDS varies the geographical uh, area shows that the mode of transmission varies in America here homosexual activity is still a major form of transmission but drug users using the needles for drug use are another major cause of the infection. I want to just tell you a little story. Well, the other one I will show you this is mother to child transmission. If a mother is HIV positive, about 25% of the of the of the babies born to her will be infected. If she breastfeeds and she's untreated and has a high viral count, her baby stands a strong risk of Acquiring the virus from her. With proper treatment today, thankfully, you can drop the virus count down to undetectable levels so that it's not not so likely to appear in the breast milk. And in Africa, we would recommend that treated women could continue to breastfeed because the risk of dying from an infection or malnutrition or something like that, if in a mother, uh, that didn't breastfeed is so great that we used to say the chances of one out of five children surviving to two years of age if they were not breastfed, it was one out of five children. So you can see breastfeeding is a major protective effect in Africa. So treatment was so important. HIV is not transmitted. It's not transmitted by casual contact. That couple will not transmit HIV. HIV. Close contact, even kissing has not been associated to show to transmit the virus. No case has ever been transmitted to, uh, has been traced to coughing, sneezing, mosquito bites, or handshakes. So put your mind at rest. Now, how does it work? Don Juan is feeling terrific. It's Friday night. And he is going to go and spend the night on the town. And so he goes to the bar and he's going to look around and he is not really as attractive as he would like to be. And so he can't find a really, you know, suitable girl, but he finds this girl who, who seems to be sort of making up to him a little bit. He doesn't know, but she's actually a sex worker. And so she uh, says, you know, I'm... I'm she doesn't ask for money. She just says, I'm short of cash. And, you know, and, and, and he talks him into it, and he gives her gives some money, and they go, and he has sex. He comes home, slightly inebriate, feeling, you know, not bad. He's had some sexual release. He goes to bed. Maybe he had a sexual encounter at 11 o'clock. By 3 o'clock in the morning, he is fast asleep. But the virus particle that he obtained from that worker has entered a CD4 cell. It switched on the cell machinery and in the space of four hours has been able to create in that cell sufficient activity that how many virus particles do you think can be created in the space of the four hours? No, not millions. 2,000. 2,000. But you see, exponential growth is such that you take two thousand virus particles in four hours. Now, each one of those is going to infect another CD four cell, and when it infects it, in another four hours, we now have how many? I'm testing your arithmetic. No, we have four million. See, See? so we have four million virus particles in four hours. So by By the time he wakes up at seven o'clock in the morning, the one virus particle now is represented by four, four million. And you can see in another four hours, it could be conceivable that he would now have how many? No, he would have eight billion. You see how exponential growth is? And so this young man may, after a couple of days, say, you know, I don't feel so good. I... I just feel achy, Doc. He goes to see the doctor and the doctor looks at him and says, yeah, how how are you? And he says, I just, I don't know. I just feel like I got a, a flu bug. And the doctor says, yeah, I think it's a virus. Take two aspirins and you'll feel better. He takes a couple of aspirins and, you know, he doesn't feel good for maybe three weeks or so. But after two or three weeks, his immune system is fighting, is starting to fight these viruses. And the battle is on. This is going to be the battle of his life because the battle is now on to fight the infection. And he, under normal circumstances, untreated, may live anywhere from seven months if he's unsuccessful to maybe 15, 20 years before he comes victim to this virus. But without treatment, it was inevitably fatal. However, we have found some treatments. Now, why did I tell you all the difficult thing? We have found that there are two types of treatments that are used to combat the HIV infection. The first of these is a reverse transcriptase inhibitor. Now, do you know what a reverse transcriptase inhibitor would do? Remember I told you there was the enzyme, the tool that was in the pocket of the virus ready to rewrite the virus back to the nucleus. An inhibitor of a reverse transcriptase would be like a band that is tied around the reverse transcriptase. So now you can't use the enzyme it blocks the activity of the enzyme so it makes the tool non functional so one form of medication is a reverse transcriptase inhibitor the other uh, protease what did i tell you about the protease i told you that the protease was the protease was an enzyme that cut that cut the the part apart. So a protease inhibitor takes the spring out of the protease enzyme and now it doesn't work. There's no cutting. So those two medications, protease inhibitors and reverse transcriptase inhibitors form the backbone of the medications used against HIV and AIDS. Of course they are working on developing modifications on each one to make them more efficient. They have side effects. These these medications are not without side effects. But the side effect of not using them is death in 100% of situations. And the side effect of using them may be that you feel sick or you don't feel so well, or you have a little bit of a rash, or you have whatever the side effects may be, headaches and things like that. But it's a question of what is the cost effectiveness. What would you rather do, die without the medicine or have some side effects with the medicine? And we know that these two medications have been shown absolutely incontrovertibly to be able to allow people to live. And whereas we used to see people dying, universally dying from HIV, we now see people who are living with HIV for periods of 25 and even 30 years. So the medications have made a big difference to the people living with HIV. So here's an example. When you hear people saying, Mrs. White said we should not use medications. And you will hear your members say that. You'll hear people saying, Mrs. White says it's not good to use medications. Mrs. White did not know of this disease Mrs. White did not know of these medications. Mrs. White was not talking of this disease or these medications. She was talking about the medications that I told you I read about in the Merck Manual from 1898, which were things like mercury and heavy metals and small doses of arsenic and alcohol and tobacco and all kinds of opiates. These, those medications were not curing anything. Number one, they didn't work. Number two, they had all side effects. Who's going to take a medicine that doesn't work and has only side effects? Of course, she was 100% right in saying, don't use medications, use natural remedies. But we have moved both in the diseases which we are working with, and we have moved in the context of our understanding of the medications. And I'm telling you, it is my firm belief that had Mrs. White been alive today, Mrs. White would have said, by all means, take this medication. So the, the virus particle gets into the, the, to the cell. Here, here's the CD4 cell. It multiplies itself by taking over the nucleus. And I've told you all about that and how it works, okay? So you understand. These are just some pictures that show how it works. I've gone over the symptoms... Told you about the symptoms. Now we say it is 100% preventable. Does that mean we've developed a vaccine, that there's a vaccine available? No. They're working on a vaccine. There are vaccines which give some protection, but nothing like 100%. Maybe 40% protection, some of the vaccines. But it's 100% preventable by the non-use of dirty needles, abstinence from sexual contact, And in the presence of sexual contact, it can be reduced, though not 100%, 85% reduction, by the use of condoms. Which brings us to a very important question. There have been some people who say Adventists should not, say, use a condom to prevent HIV and AIDS. They say, you're only promoting sexual activity. That's why I said to you, should we tell the meat eater about the beans? You see, I'm building you I'm building a case for you, all right? Because to withhold beans from a meat eater gives him 3.6 times more risk of colon cancer over his lifetime. To withhold condoms means that there is an eighty-five percent chance more that they will get HIV and AIDS. So should we withhold a condom from somebody just because we disagree or the Lord disagrees or their behavior is immoral, whatever we, we want to say about it, are we still going to say, you know, you must die in your sinfulness? What if it's your son or your daughter? Wouldn't you pray... Dear Lord, bring them back to you. Bring them back that they can understand your tenderness and your grace. Lord, bring them into your fold. They are lost sheep. And the Lord, you remember, said that the good shepherd went out to get those sheep. But let me tell you, there would be no sheep or lamb out in the wilderness if they're engaging in that kind of activity in Africa and we didn't have them use the condom. The condom gives them not only an 85% chance of not getting AIDS, it not only maybe they use it because they want to have more sexual activity, but it also means there will be a greater chance that they will be around for the Holy Spirit to speak to them and draw them back into the fold. I see you had a question. Oh, let me tell you. You see, you are here in North America. Maybe you're unaware. In, in, in Africa, I was in Africa for... Uh, in my life, I've lived in Africa. I think it's 16 years, I' don't know. but I was there for about uh, uh, eight years in, in the last stint that I was there. And in that time, we established family planning programs, we established, sexually transmitted clinics, we established treatment, our hospitals doing all kinds of things. And of course we worked with people and contraception includes a condom. Now we never believed in driving down the street and throwing condoms into the street. We weren't distributing condoms like that. That's irresponsible. But we would sit and have consultations. As an obstetrician and gynecologist, we deal with the earthiness of humanity. Let me tell you, when you have people come in and say, Dr. Henny says, can you tell me who the father is? And I say, you're supposed to tell me. I can't tell you who the father is. Well, dog, you know, I've got my regular boyfriend, but I got drunk on the Friday night and I slept with that guy and I don't know whether it's him or whether it's my real boyfriend that, that's the father. How, how am I going to, to be able to find out? Or you've got a 17-year-old kid comes in and she says, Well, since I've been having sex with my boyfriend, and you, and you say to them, Well, what are you doing for protection? See? The world is not the way we would like it to be. It's not an ideal world. So as we sit and we talk, and as we, as we talk, it's important for us to provide that patient with the very best advice we possibly can. And we always would say you need to be abstinent. You need to keep yourself for marriage. You need to keep yourself pure. You are exposing yourself to multiple dangers. But knowing human nature... And knowing perhaps that patient in particular who may have had six boyfriends in the last two years or be a woman who's had five children each by a different father over the last five years and she's only 25 years of age. Don't live in a dream world. And so we would say, you know, if you're going to persist in this behavior, please use a condom. Because otherwise, you're putting yourself at tremendous risk for HIV and AIDS. That was the message and the approach that we had to, uh, in Africa for health ministries in our Mission Hospital. There came a health director who did not agree with that. He said, conduct, not condoms. And he was so adamant that he convinced the leadership that It's conduct, not condoms. And condoms became a dirty word. On the condom was put all the immorality. On the condom was laid all the sexual misfortunes. And so the condom became, as it were, a distillation of all the sexual aversion that they might have had to promiscuity and they wanted people not to even think of it, so that some of our pastors thought that the condom itself was sinful. It got so bad that a, a young physician went in, uh, and his wife was pregnant, and as they did went to do the delivery, they checked the blood of the, the mother, and they found that she was HIV positive. And they said to her, you're HIV positive, did you know that? She said, no, this is a true case. I know the the country, I know the hospital, where it occurred. So the young physician said, wow, what am I supposed to do? He didn't say, where did she get it? Because he probably knew his background, he probably knew her background prior to them getting married. But he said, what must I do? So he approached actually the president of the church in that union and said, do you think it would be all right if my wife and I used a condom to prevent me from getting HIV? So prevalent was this antipathy towards condoms that the president said to him, no, you must not use condoms. You see, in North America, we don't understand the differences that there are in culture, in availability, in mindset, and so many factors. And so, I, I tell you this because it has other implications for health ministry too. You know, we, we, we must be careful that we don't, we don't make something sinful when it's not sinful at all. How can a condom be sinful? The soul that sinneth it shall die. Sin is transgression of the law. Does a condom do any of those things, you see? It doesn't do that. Uh, Mrs. White said, tea is sin. Was it tea that was sin? No, she meant drinking tea. She didn't mean the tea itself. That was a product that God had created. We have to be careful the way our words will be interpreted. And this is one of the reasons we stand in defense of the lacto-over-vegetarian diet. Because we don't want to take milk and make it Vilified. There's no reason to vilify milk. There is no evidence to vilify milk. It's your choice if you don't want it. But please don't say that it's so terrible that when you go to some country where perhaps that could save a life, it's not going to be taken because it's viewed as being evil. Having stood in the ward of Miami Adventist Hospital and looking at the pediatric ward, We had 45 children. It was that season of the year when the harvest was not yet come and last year's harvest had all been eaten up. And the children now who had been doing without the beans, who were not able to eat the corn, especially the two-year-olds who had just come off the mother's milk because the mother had now become pregnant again, they were lying in that ward with pot bellies, red hair, and they had apathetic faces, swollen feet because of the lack of protein, suffering with kwashiorkor, protein, calorie, malnutrition. And I said to, these ki- to the nurses, I said, what are you feeding them? They said, we're giving them mealy meal broth, which is maize, maize meal porridge. I said, are you, what are you adding to it? Because I know that maize is a good food, but it's deficient in lysine. I said, are you adding beans? She said, we haven't got any beans. That's the reason they're here. They wouldn't be here if there were beans available. I said, there must be beans. No, she said, there's not beans. I said, there's gotta be beans. No, there's not. So I went to the market. I had money. I had money in my pocket. I was a white man. I, I was gonna show. Them. Do you know, I could not find beans anywhere. I went through the market. I couldn't find any beans now I started to panic. What am I going to do? And then I saw they had a sack of little tiny what are called carpenter fish. They're only this long. These were little dried fish in a sack. They had died having been caught in a fine net in agony. They were contorted. They were all twisted and dried. Their little bodies all dried. And their baleful eyes looking at me like this. And as I looked at them, I thought, these people eat this. And I had about $10, which was a lot of money. Remember that some of those people were only earning $100 a month. I put down $10 and I bought a little bag of capenta fish. I took it to the kitchen and... What did they do? They boiled them. They boiled them with the scales on. They boiled them with the guts in. They boiled them with the eyes looking at you. They boiled them with all kinds of bones. Do you think that I would think that that was an ideal kind of stuff? No, they boiled it and boiled it and boiled it, and they made a fish paste. And now it came out just like a fish paste. And they took a tablespoonful of that on everybody's plate with their mealy meal. And the kids, at first, because their bellies, their digestive tracts were not able to take it, they took it little by little. And as they took the nourishment and the protein that came there, they became cured. And so they were able to be restored to health. Now, I don't advocate fish. But I'm not going to vilify it in that sort of situation. And you may choose to be a a vegan-type vegetarian, but don't vilify what could be food. That's not a biblical position. The Bible says, do not criticize food that the good Lord may have made available for people to eat. Choose to do what you want, but don't interfere with what could be the life, the very life of somebody else. And that's why, we don't talk against a condom. Not that we want people to be wearing condoms. Not that we're going to throw condoms in the street. Not that we're going to join the gay pride parades and inflate condoms the size of the ceiling. No, we're not going to be doing that kind of stuff, all right? But there is a place for judicious, thoughtful, careful application. And I want you to be careful, judicious, thoughtful health ministers. That when people see you, they will say, this person understands. And when it comes to HIV and AIDS, and you know that in Africa, 75% of our hospitals are full of patients with HIV, that we will be compassionate, and we will be kind, that we will have understanding. It's a tragedy that in reality, the reason we were able to push The general conference to establish an HIV and AIDS office in Africa came when we had sufficient numbers of pastors who were coming down with HIV and AIDS, presidents of some of the unions, and treasurers and secretaries in administration, that I said to them, the cost, and this was true at that time, the cost of the medical therapy for each one of these is going to be five times the salary you are paying for them, Uh, that they suddenly woke up that we needed to do something about this disease. And we today have an HIV and AIDS office. Dr. Oscar and Eugenia Giordano are here at the conference. They are on their annual leave. They've come to this health conference. They are the leaders in that particular program. Let us have compassion. Let us understand this condition. Realize that many, many people have acquired the disease, not through sexual transmission at all. Think of all those haemophiliacs who acquired it as little children getting there to control their bleeding disorder. Think of it that maybe we as mission doctors may have transmitted it, reusing needles that the offerings were not sufficient for us to have a clean needle every time. And so we were trying to sterilize the needles. And possibly we had used a needle that was on one person and we injected somebody else with the very best of intentions we may have transmitted this disease. So let's realize we don't live in the splendid isolation of North America or the splendid isolation of the church in Colombia. We are a world family. We share each other's joys. We share each other's sorrows. And we have a world mindset that understands there is need for flexibility in the way we approach The human need of God's people around the world. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons,